We're back with the Truth and Legend podcast, and today we've got a really special guest, a good friend of mine, and Eric has actually worked with her as well. Her name is Harriet Bailey, and she comes to us from New Jersey at the moment, mm-hmm. and you are a producer, director in the wildlife film industry. And would you say wildlife film industry, or would you just go even further than that, like history? And Yeah, I guess I came up through the sort of science TV angle so I, I yeah I don't want to limit myself if someone wants to give me a job and it's to do with <laughs> to do with science more broadly but definitely definitely factual I have been on a few um sort of narrative shoots and they are uh, uh they are crazy there, there's too many people on those so definitely factual um but yes science in general and I've been sort of narrowing into wildlife over the past sort of five, six years. So give us a little history on yourself because you're, you have a dual citizenship and then you actually were born, I think in the U S and then you moved to the UK and then you've moved back. Yes. So I was born in Philadelphia. Um, the only one in my family who was my parents lived over here and, and had me so I could apply for a, a um, passport, which I did when I was 11. Um, but I grew up in the UK and hence the accent and the sarcasm and the the uh, general um, morose <laughs> humor, um, and um, yeah, so I I moved over here almost nine years ago now. I had been wanting to move to New York for 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 ages, and I had the passport, and I didn't have to deal with any of the visa things, which is very lucky. Um, so yeah, I had a job that lasted six months, which was which was long for me. Saved up money, bought a ticket. Came over, had a suitcase on my bike, and um, yeah, just just sort of started again. I was so yeah. When I was back in in London, I had been in TV for sort of uh, six or seven years, and I had you know been going up the career ladder, had made it to assistant producer, and was getting jobs and was doing quite well. And then I decided just to chuck it in and come over <laughs> here. So <laughs> starting from the ground again, being sort of a production assistant and working on whatever I could get. Um, but yeah, that was like nine years ago. And now I'm here, which is a good place to be. That's a good story. I, re- I remember you told me all that. Um, Harry and I have now her name is Harriet Bailey, but she goes by Harry. So when I say Harry and I have been, that's Harry. She and I were in the Arctic for what, three weeks. And that was the first time I ever met you. And I think we had never met in person. We talked on the phone a couple of times. And every time we talked on the phone, we're like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Because <laughs> we're dealing with like minus 45 degree temperatures and we're both like, yeah, we'll do it, but maybe not. I don't know. And You think it's safe? I, yeah. you think I was calling her for, she didn't know it, but I was calling her for moral support. And I don't know if she was um, relying on me, but we actually met in Fairbanks. So yeah. um, that's where all this started. So, But you're, you're uh, used to, you know, you're used to these sort of Arctic, Alaska um, landscapes. He leaves in the winter, though. He's a snowbird. (laughs) I'm definitely used to it, and I definitely don't mind it, but the minus 45 got me, and then I had to call a mutual friend just to say, is this, should I be doing this? And he was like, yeah, you're fine. I just had no concept of minus, you know, Fahrenheit and Celsius cross at minus 40, and, you know, I don't know anything, minus (laughs) 5, I just... Yeah, I just was totally ignorant and very excited. So I was like, yeah, you know, they, they must have figured it out. They're <laughs> yeah. a whole production company. <laughs> and then you get there and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> it all hinges on these these two people who are quite um, quite wild. 
So before we go any further, um, last week we were talking about, set, we were setting up this podcast to do it with you, and you said that you were going to do a bird trip this past weekend. So I thought that might be a fun thing to talk about and see what you saw, because everybody, th- you live in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and everybody thinks of New Jersey as New York, I think, or or very populated urban. But I think there's yeah. actually quite a bit of wildlife out there. There um, is, yeah. And you actually also run a birding club, right? So that was the reason for your trip, and then you took your club out to a location to look for what? Weird ducks. It was a weird duck event. So <laughs> weird duck season, it was coined by somebody a few years ago and all the all the ducks from up north sort of overwinter or stop over here and it's in the gen in sort of January and February, you get all the strange aquatic birds in one spot. Um so so yeah, we have this we have this bird club. It's called the Feminist Bird Club. It started off in New York and we have the, the Jersey City chapter. And it's really a way to uh encourage or just bring together people who live in Jersey City, which is a massively urban environment, you know, very post industrial. Um uh people think it's super polluted and it is. There's, there's a lot of super fun sites around, but there's also a lot of places for, for birding. Um and yeah, we went to a place called Decourt Park, which is an old landfill. There's like four or five ex landfills <laughs> in the city. Um, but they're great birding spots because they get, they get turned into parks and there's not a lot you can do with the landfill except turn it into a park or a golf course. So usually the, the birding spots are close to golf courses as well. Um, yeah. So, so we went out, we went out on Saturday and it was a great day. And we had, we had like 35 people show up, which is, which is cool. Yeah. We've been around for a couple of years and, um, at the beginning, you know, we had like five, 10 people, but, um, yeah, it's really, it's really grown and people are super interested in birds and, you know, where there's, you're in a space where there's not so much immediate nature, people are really pining for that, that connection and that sense of community and, um, yeah, we sort of let people know where to go and where they can bird. So what we saw, we saw, and I don't know what, I don't know if this will cross over with birds you have over in your, if your spot, but, um, we had greenwood teal. We had a lot of ruddy ducks. Um, we had some pintails. There's always <laughs> with Jersey birding, there's always a point where you're looking out across the wetland and you see a sort of shape and you're like, is that, is that a bird or is that trash? And you have like a group of people with a scope on it. They're like, I just can't tell. I don't know. It's like got black and white in it. And it's like, oh no, it's an old tire. Um, but sometimes it's a bird. And this time it was like, um, there was this pintail that was all, um, coiled up and we couldn't figure out what it was. And then it stuck its beak out and it's like, oh, it's a pintail. Beautiful. Um, yeah. What else? A lot of canvas backs. There was probably a redhead in the canvas back somewhere, but we didn't, we didn't manage to see it. I love ruddy ducks. Because they're like, they're just little. They're cute. They got the yeah, their yeah, little, little beak. Tail, little beak. Do we even tail. have them in Colorado? Infrequently. I don't think I've ever seen one here. I've tried so hard to get one because they have that blue beak, and I just, I've struck out every time. Come to Jersey. <laughs> I will. Oh, right now, there's like hundreds of them. Yeah. So because yeah, because Jersey's a Jersey's a, a great spot, um, because it's on the Atlantic Flyway. And yes, yeah, so you have all these birds that migrate. Spring is just, uh, spring is a, is absolutely chaotic. It's, it's a party every day. It's great. Um, and Jersey actually has now, 
I want to say the most different habitats of a state. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have to fact check me on that. I'm, I'm good at like, I have a lot of like stories and things that are interesting, but I, I'm a little um, uh, flaky on the, the actual <laughs> statistics of it. So maybe yeah. at the end we can go through and like fact check everything <laughs> I've said. Um, but yeah, there's just like, it's, it's, it's super biodiverse or habitat diverse. It just also happens to be the most densely populated state in the country. So coming back from Alaska back to, back to Jersey was like, was a, was a bit of a shock. But yeah, but it's great for birds. There's like, there's Cape May at the bottom, which is a super, yeah. super birding spot. Um, and I've done some like New Year's walks down there and they have all the secret group chats. I don't know if you guys are in any birding <laughs> chats, like rarities and everything. Yeah, we have the Denver field ornithologist here in Denver. That bunch of bird nerds, but yeah. I love it. Yeah. We're, um, yeah, with all the... Uh, wait, what was it trying to say? Um, oh, yeah, with all the, like, the rare bird alerts and things like that. Do you have like vagrants that come over to Alaska or to Denver? Um, we had a snowy owl few, during that eruption. I mean, it was probably six, seven years ago. And that was like, it was crazy. I took three vacation days trying to get this bird. And someone would spot it on top of a chimney and like there's 20 of us just hiking through this little city park and like, you know, the bird's probably stressed, but at the same time, like you're trying so hard. Like, I just want to see it through my binoculars. <laughs> so yeah, we, we've, we have our fair share. Like Eric, a- you get a lot of randos, don't you? And the last Yeah. Time. Yeah, this time of year is not great for stuff showing up. Just there's really not much around. Um, summertime, yeah, spring and fall are always huge. See what shows up this year, Harry. You'd probably be excited. It is a massive cone year, so the crossbills are everywhere. The red poles are everywhere. The finch numbers are just super high all over Alaska. There's things like uh, Cassin's finch is not common for us at all like any of the house finch cassins purple at least as far north i think there's eight of them in homer that right now so that shows you something's really shifting things around with the food sources and who knows what other factors but yeah yeah, it's been kind of exciting so even though it's a quote for us kind of a common bird it's uncommon to have them just covering every tree so that's been fun (laughs) great you'll have to take some photos yeah Yeah. i want to come to Alaska and go birding. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I told Harry about the white raven too, Eric. Maybe you oh yeah, that's right. Clue in a little bit more on that because I didn't know very much about it. Yeah, there's been um a lo- well raven with the lucidism, so it's almost all white. It's got a blue eye. It's really pretty. But it there was a bird down on the Kenai a couple hours um, south of Anchorage that this summer that was a white raven, and I don't know if this is the same bird. I don't know if anyone's really been able to to tell. But another one just popped up in Anchorage in the fall, and it's been seen almost every day. It flies from the mountains down and hangs out in the Spinard area by, you know, these like apartment complexes and restaurants. And then in the evening, they all fly back up to the mountains to roost. So I've gone a couple times, but I don't 
I mean, and this isn't an urban environment <laughs> compared to the same levels, but it feels pretty quickly like in an urban environment when you're going up and down like an alleyway with dumpsters and people everywhere. <laughs> like, all right, this isn't my style of relaxing time. So I haven't done a lot with it, but it's kind of Does fun it hang to see. Out with a group of black ravens. Yeah, for the most part, there's probably like a dozen or so that all hang out in this kind of general area and they interact with each other. <laughs> so is that's been fun. You said lucidism or lucid? Yeah, lucidistic. Yeah, so is it's that not complete. To albinism? Yeah, so there's still some pigment. So it's not a complete lack of pigment where you'd have like a pink eye. It's got color in the eye, and there's a little bit of black wash, you know, like at the tips of some of the feathers. So, but it for the most part it looks almost pure white. Very cool. Yeah, it's a cool bird. And very popular, massive Facebook group blew up <laughs> within like the first week, and there's constantly sightings and pictures and everything. So it's kind of our well, little he's been celebrity for right a now. Long time, right? I mean, this <laughs> yeah, started fall. back when I was in Anchorage, I think, in November, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, there was a lot of talk at first about yet? whether or not it would survive. Like, would it need that black coloring to absorb heat? Would it, you know, freeze in the winter? And would it get picked off? Does it look, you know, like? A pigeon or something and maybe a falcon would try and come in i don't know but it's still kicking i still see posts about it all the time so i love yeah. i love these i love all these theories all these yeah i know all it's always fun Reddit. to see yeah, <laughs> <We> <laughs> yeah. Heard, i don't know if you heard of flaco flaco the owl in new york there's mm, a it's a I eurasian so. eurasian eagle owl? eagle owl is that maybe it's uh, an eagle owl? It's a big, big one big bird um yeah bigger than a horned owl, um, and it was in Central cool. Park Zoo, and it escaped. I think mm -hmm. somebody <laughs> was involved in letting it out. Um, but yeah, it escaped, and it, and, it, and it lived in Central Park for a while, and everybody was like, oh, it's going to die, it's going to eat rat poison, it doesn't know how to fly. Flacco is having the time of his life. He's like <laughs> flying around, he's like king of the park, he has his tree that he sits in, He's been he's been doing tours of Lower East Side, um, yeah, and it's great. And it was this was like kind of in the middle of the pandemic, so everybody was also like cooped up, and they really felt yeah. connected to this bird who had escaped <laughs> and was you know flying free. Um, so yeah, yeah, Flacco. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Can you imagine back? So I just recently started watching a a YouTube channel called The Desert Drifter, and this is a guy who was a park ranger for a lot of years and now he started a youtube channel and it's blown up but he just cruises around the desert southwest and looks for um ancient uh native american dwellings and ruins whatever's left but he finds all these petroglyphs or pictographs mm -hmm. so pictographs are painted on and petroglyphs are chipped into the rock and he sees all these just really cool figures but can you imagine being a person at that time and you have all these black birds and then all of a sudden a white bird shows up and what kind of significance that probably would have. Yeah. I mean, you talk coming. about our Reddit or our little chat groups. <laughs> well, you know, their chat groups are like pecking on rock and leaving a, <laughs> leaving a drawing of whatever that was. And then whoever else, you know, but how do you depict, you know, different colors when you're just chipping on rock. But I think about that a lot where it's like, what how did that go or whenever you get these anomalies how did they how did they uh 
deal with it? Where did they talk about it? Was it? Yeah, what was it? It was supernatural. Throw someone in the lava. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It depends if yeah, depends if it's like a devil or an angel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But if you have any interest at all in, in Native American stuff, that channel is pretty cool because the guy just goes on random hikes. And he was an ex-park ranger, so he's not doing anything to destroy. He's not even, he won't even touch anything. Every now and then he'll pick up a corn cob or something like that that was, you know, because a lot of those civilizations grew corn for, for subsistence. So he might pick up a corn cob and he might pick up a piece of pottery or something. But for the most part, he just leaves it alone. And he's just showing you. And this guy's getting two, three, four hundred thousand views on all of his videos. So it's kind of cool if you have That's any awesome. interest in the desert southwest. So moving on, and while we're talking about birds, I know you were on a show. I think I can't remember the name of it, and I should have done my research before this. But wasn't it Wings? Wings over water. Wings over water. Yeah. And was that one of your first gigs in? The U.S. when you came back over as far as wildlife or was that? And just give us a history of that and then what that project was. Because I think you can talk about that one because it's been out for a while, right? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. I can talk about that one. Um, Yeah. So it was I guess that was my second natural history gig. My first one was for um, PBS and it was American Spring Live. um, And it was a three night live show so that was also the first time I was directing and I was kind of thrown into the directing I didn't realize I was going to (laughs) be directing that shoot um but I didn't see anyone else's name on the call sheet and I was like wait a (laughs) second I thought I was producing this but I didn't realize I was not going to be a director and um and my senior producer Anne Prum who's who's wonderful um does a lot of PBS shows she's like oh you'll be fine and I was like, okay, <laughs> it's a live show, so you have to be fine. There's like no other way. <laughs> yeah, you don't have um, an option. <laughs> so off the back of that, we we were filming moths in Florida, um, just outside of Gainesville, with a with a, a super moth scientist called Akito Kawahara, um, and we had the the big white sheet out with the with the UV light, and all the moths came to the came to the screen. Um, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, off the back of that, and knew um this production company just upstate in new york called archipelago films and they were making this 3d imax film called wings over water and they needed an ap and and um yeah i interviewed with them um and they were like oh it's good it's a it's a year contract it ended up being almost two years but i was like wow i've never had (laughs) had a job for a year i don't know can i do that (laughs) um um but yeah it was yeah it turned out to be Great timing because, well, for, for, for me and work, because it was just before the pandemic started. Um, so it meant that I was employed for, you know, two years into the, into the pandemic, which was, which was super lucky. Just like, you know, friends and, um, other colleagues in film. Yeah. Just productions shut down and, you know, they had their year planned out and then it all just fell apart. So I was very lucky to have that, have that job. And yeah, we, um, we went across the country, spent a lot of time in the Dakotas and in New Mexico, um, filming these three bird species as they made their migrations up to the prairie pothole region, which we rebranded as the prairie wetlands because potholes have a negative yes. <laughs> connotation. Um, so yeah, that was a huge, um, huge endeavor. I think it's still it's still out in 3D film. Yeah. Has anyone, I, Eric, you've seen it, right? 
I haven't. Yeah. I don't. There's nowhere. I mean, there are theaters that show it during the IMAX screenings at like some of the large museums that have that, but I haven't found any way to watch it locally, unfortunately. Yeah, I actually ran into the the uh, what's his? I'm sorry, I'm forgetting Andy his Young. name. Andy Young, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of Ar- Archipelago Films. He was in Ho- uh, Haynes when I was down there for the shooting the Eagles, so I got to talk to him a little bit about that show. And so I'm dying to watch it, but yeah, I keep looking if I fly into like a big town, if there's a museum or something there, I'm going to have to try and go watch it on IMAX because I'm really curious to see that IMAX experience. You have to see it in 3D. I'd only seen it in 2D. Like I'd watched, I'd watched it a thousand times. I could probably narrate it all for you right now. Um, But I, I'd I'd watch like cuts on my phone. I'll just be sitting there on a train or something watching this really tight. And it's supposed to be, you know, I don't know how big an IMAX screen is, 60 feet wide or something. Yeah. Um, so the first time I watched it on the actual big screen was was just, yeah, it was super impressive. But then watching it in 3D, yeah, in my mind. I was like, yeah, wow, look at that really shot cool. that we did. But it's, yeah, it's got depth <laughs> to it. So, yeah, there's something about 3D. It seems like a little bit of a gimmick, but I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. So do, do you, you have to watch or wear the glasses when you watch it in a theater like that? Yeah. And then yeah. were you guys shooting with multiple cameras on the same, or did they do it in post for the 3D, or was it all it multiple post. cameras? Yeah, because I think you you can take two cameras out into the field, but can you imagine? Like, and they have to be the same It'd be impossible distance to apart focus all the time. <laughs> you know, you can do that in the studio when you're doing Lord of the Rings, but um, it's highly impractical. I know that some people, well, I think that some people have done it, but um, yeah. Uh, we did not. <laughs> you needed. You got to prioritize the the bird action, um, and then yeah, in post they would composite. They would split each um, element in the frame and trace it out like the feathers. And we had a lot of wow. grass in the film because it's all about the grasslands. And I remember when the <laughs> when the um, effects team were like, we can't we can't do all the shots. <laughs> we're not going to cut out every blade of grass, is it? floats in and out so yeah it was i think you know you end up 95 percent of it is 3d and there's a couple of shots when you have a huge flock of birds that are taken off you know that five second shot isn't going to be 3d but yeah a lot of work the post was so i finished you know it was everything was happening in parallel the post and the production but yeah i sort of rolled off as the post and the effects were going on because i'm a i'm an infield kind of producer <laughs> So two things on that. You said AP, and I just want you to explain mm-hmm. what AP is because I don't think the average person will know what that is. And then secondly, you had come to the New York, moved to New York, and then all of a sudden you're cruising around the country. And didn't you drive a box truck because you had to like drive some of the stuff around? <laughs> yeah, that had yeah. to be an awesome experience because you wanted to come <clears throat> over here and see a bunch of stuff, right? And that was like the perfect opportunity to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, number one. What was what was number one? AP. AP, AP. Um, AP is either associate producer or assistant producer. I think one's maybe a British term and one's an American term. Um, so I came up through the editorial channel. Um, I know you asked me about history before, and I've just been doing little pieces here and there. Um, so I, um, yeah, I, I started off as a researcher, and then became did a little bit of production coordinating as well, and then became an AP, associate or assistant producer, and then that's sort of a track into producer director. So instead of doing the um, sort of filming and production side like you guys are, 
I was doing more of the story and the background. Um, and there's like, yeah, there's a bunch of different ways of getting to every position and everybody has a different um, way of getting there. But um, yeah, I was always quite focused on story and I'm quite an organized person. So I love a spreadsheet. And so you get handed these, yeah, handed these roles and yeah, you just jump in um, and do them. Uh, and then, wait, what was the second question? The box truck. Oh, that was, yeah, the box truck. That was a separate, that was a separate shoot. That was another PBS. Um, oh, that wasn't the wings one? That wasn't wings, no. Oh, I, I thought it was wings. Um, no, I did, I, I, did I drive much on wings? Yeah, I think, well, we had a... Um, a truck because you couldn't fly because it's the pandemic. Um, so we did have to drive everywhere, but um, it was. Oh no, did we fly? <laughs> no. Did we drive to Dakota? No, I must have flown out. And there was like nobody on the plane. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, it's such a long time ago, <laughs> but it was so recent. Yeah. Um, but we had, we had a production van and um, Andy, director, and Brandon, who's camera assistant. Um, would like drive out there for a four-day road trip and then yeah just be driving around the country so we yeah they must have flown in hmm. because you got yeah as as somebody working in media we had sort of passes to move between states because we were doing journalism it's not like it wasn't like immediate journalism it wasn't breaking news <laughs> but it was important it was important reporting um so yeah the truck watch. was Again? No, I was going to say, you need something to watch. That might be an emergency if you run out exactly. of Netflix. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's why so much natural history was commissioned over yeah. the pandemic because everybody was just consuming, consuming. Um, yeah, and now we have like, now we have too much. Well, you can never have too much. But um, yeah, the thing with natural history is that it's, it's, it's evergreen. You know, you could like watch Planet Earth 1 and it still be relevant. Um, so yeah, that's why it was challenging at the moment. But the truck, the truck was for a PBS show where we were going across the country. Um, it was about aging and we had different um, like parent-child couples in different parts of the, of the US. Um, and it would be a millennial and their parent. So their parent would be not, you know, they're, they're aging, but they're not in a, they don't feel old yet. <laughs> and we were talking about, you know, what's going to happen in the next five, 10 years. And we had this truck which we turned into a mobile studio um, so that we could have this, do these interviews and have the same sort of setup for each, for each um, person in these different places. So yeah, I drove it from New Mexico to Portland, Oregon, to Idaho, down to Texas, and then back to, to New York. Um, and I, because I was a, because it was for a production, um, I was classed as a commercial driver. So I had to keep like the logbook. Oh and my hours, and it's all very complicated. You can't drive for more than 16 hours in a 24-hour period. If you drive for 11 hours, you have to have two 15-minute breaks. And and I was really confused by this. So I decided to, the first, and I had to go through the way stations. I'm in a little, like, 27-foot box truck, and I'm, like, squeezed between these massive um, trucks, lorries. What do you call them? Yeah, just trucks. Semi-trucks. <laughs> Semi-trucks. There you go. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pootling along. And obviously, I don't really have anything in my in my truck but I decided to stop off at the first one just to ask like am I doing this right am I going to be pulled over if I have the wrong numbers and this guy was like why are you stopping I was like, oh, <laughs> he's like oh god now I have to do some work and I was like oh sorry um and he's like what are you doing 
<laughs> driving this empty truck and I was like oh we're making a film anyway I just sounded really suspicious you know what's a British person doing driving a truck <laughs> well and then you're going around picking up people to interview them in the back of your truck yeah right it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> come come in the back of my truck I got a camera in there it'll be fine <laughs> lock them in um, <laughs> yeah and um and then, because we we also blocked off the back of the truck so we could have the gear in the back and a light, and then we had a piece of like translucent acrylic to, to diffuse the light for the for the inside. So he went he went into the main part. And he's like, "Is this walled off?" I was like, "Why is it walled off?" And I was like, "Oh, it's just boxes." Then <laughs> I show him the back, unlock the back, and I was like, "It's just film gear." He's like, "Okay, right, I'm done with this person." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but that was yeah, that was amazing. I got to see. Um, a lot of road infrastructure <laughs> in America and a lot yeah. of landscape. It's amazing when you're driving for so long, how landscapes morph and change. And you see the, it's not just like the mountains and the prairies it's like an in-between an interstitial zone. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah, it was very cool. And then you have like different time markings. Like you don't just look at the clock, you look at your gas going down and you look at the sun <laughs> as it, you're on a super straight road through Utah. You've got the sun going going over yeah so that was yeah that was a great experience yeah i, I remember so harry and i spent a lot of time in a tent in the arctic so we told a lot of stories and that's why i got him kind of confused i thought the box truck was for that but now it all comes comes back so since you described what or told us what an ap does let's just go on and to what a producer director does just for people that don't know what what is that role and and how does that or what do you do in those roles? Yeah, so so uh, like it sounds, it's like two roles. There's a producer and a director, but you only get paid for one. Um, and, you know, natural history shoots, you you have three, four people. So everybody's kind of doing a bit of everything. And that's what I like about working in small teams. It's very collaborative. Um, and you just, you have to you have to pick up and do what needs to be done, whether that's like going to the shops or doing receipts or, whatever cleaning something is like everybody's it's a, it's a very leveling experience but um producer producer director so a producer i would say um has all the information that you need for the shoot if you have any question about the shoot the producer should be able to answer it so you know schedules locations liaising with people um all types of paperwork making sure the crew making sure there is a crew making sure the crew knows what they're doing um making sure the crew's happy um, yeah, getting them ice cream if they need it, you know, that's a, that's a producer. And then a director is making the decisions. So they have the, um, the vision in mind. They have the story. They're thinking about what, what, um, shots they need to, to, to fill in what's missing. So, and they're, yeah, so they're just telling everybody what needs to be done in order to finish a sequence. Um, and then the producer's more like how to do it. So it, it makes sense that the roles are together. You just have a bit more responsibility. But it's, yeah, it's, um, so yeah, I've been, I've been, I would say producer director for about six years. And there's a bit of crossover when you're like changing roles, going up from one to another. You do some AP roles and some producing roles and then some directing and then more AP work. And um, I'm trying now just to exclusively take producer director roles. Um, but, you know, it depends. It depends on the project, and like I say, everyone mucks in, so you end up being, yeah, being a lot of people at the same time. But yeah, you have to have, you have to have 
opinions and you have to be able to communicate them. I think that's the, the main thing. Good opinions. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, I've worked with Harry a couple of times now and we talk a lot on the phone and super awesome to work with because, yeah, it's, it's you have opinions, but it's like all positive kind of stuff. It's never it's never like that irate director that's like, what in the hell were you thinking? You know, it's it's a collaborative collaborative. Er, er, uh, Brandon always has to fix my words because I never <laughs> get them out right in the podcast. Collaborative <laughs> effort between all of us. And it was just. It was a blast. And Eric worked with Harry when we were on a shoot in Montana. And I think Eric did a lot of that AP work, I would say, too, right? Because you guys ended up working together on, um, like, all yeah, the like downloading that, yeah. and mm. all the organization stuff. It was, it was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Did you, did you enjoy that, Eric? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That was a good experience. Definitely go back to it all the time. <laughs> Thinking about everything and yeah, where it's all led now. So <laughs> yeah, that but, one where it's at. Yeah. It, yeah. it got finished. It got made yeah. into a doc. Yeah. Um, cool. yeah. Yeah. A, each shoot has its own, uh, peculiarities, but you know, as a, as a, yeah, as a, PD, you know, I come in and I need to rely on other people because people like you guys, you guys spend days and weeks and months out in the field. You have this knowledge that I don't have because I, because I'm either I'm in a city or I'm like by my computer doing my spreadsheets. So it has to be a collaboration. I can't, you can't, um, you can't do it alone. So yeah, I need you guys. <laughs> <laughs> just like we need you because a lot of times we're just so checked out it's like well what are we supposed to do now or what, are, what should we shoot now or yeah and when we were in i think we can talk about this we can't talk about what we were shooting but when harry and i were in the arctic we had so many limitations with like travel and how do we get from one place to another and then you slowly figure stuff out it's like well we can only take two people out today because i don't think the snow machine can get more than that out and then you and then you slowly figure out, well, it's really boring to sit in camp all day. I got this really, really fantastic drawing that Harry did. Because in the in the beginning of that shoot, the guy that our guide was like, Well, we can only haul the camera and you and me on this one snow machine. So Harry would stay back in camp. Well, you figure it's minus 40, minus 30, minus 25. It never was warmer than minus whatever, right? So she would end up staying back in camp and get her work done. But then there was time in the day to, to be like, well, what am I going to do now? And she did this drawing that was just amazing. She gave it to me at the end of the shoot, and I have it framed in my house in Alaska now. But um, what we figured out over time was – we're just going to push it and we're all three on the snow machine and we're all three going to, you had a trailer and we got it all figured out, but it's one of those deals where it just took us a minute to, to figure it out, but get her, getting her out there where we were shooting and instead of having to convey, Hey, this is what we're up against. And these are the problems that we're dealing with currently getting her out there was so helpful because then she was able to relay that information back to, the home office that is just like, okay, this is what's going on or we need to change this or we're not going to be able to do this or whatever. So as part of her role out there, it was a lot of that, but you have to be there to know, right? 
So yeah. it was super important to have her there. Yeah, and that's a good that's a good point. I think one of the main um parts of my role is is that communication, is being that sort of link between the the cinematographers who are who are focused on trying to get these shots and um you know should be should be able just to direct all their attention to that so they do the best job that they can. And then, you know, managing this team, which is usually in Bristol, um, but could but could be anywhere. But they're like, you know, they're in an office and they're not in minus 40 degrees. Um, so they don't quite know what's going on. So you have to like translate what's going on and, and set expectations. Like, I love this storyboard that you've sent. It's very detailed and you have some shots on here, which would be beautiful if we could get them. <laughs> but those ones are not, we're not going to get those. Those are just not going to happen. So we're going to have to like reframe the story. So there's a lot like in the field you know, thinking on your feet. You're like, oh, okay, this is the situation. This is what we can do. This is what we can't do. Um, let's see what options we have, you know, going forward, given that this is what we're dealing with. So, yeah. And we and then having to do that via a sat phone um, where you can speak to somebody once a day, um, yeah, makes it makes it challenging. It doesn't help when you're, like, melting the floor of your tent at the same time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Mike just had a – we have a comfort level. I reckon <laughs> that uh, the other Alaskans, you know, didn't quite understand. But it was toasty. We had a very toasty tent. <laughs> so wait, so talk about that. So you guys are in tents, right? Yeah. Because what were they called? They had a, uh, Arctic ovens. Arctic ovens, yeah. And they have a stove inside of it, right? And then there's two cots. Yep. Wait, so you had to sleep in the same tent as Michael? Yeah. yeah did I you bring did. earplugs? <laughs> did you snore? I can't remember. See, oh, she, I was probably I probably waited till she went to bed before I ever tried because <laughs> I try to take other people into consideration. If I am super tired, I think everybody says I snore. I don't think I do. It's not been recorded. But, <laughs> well, dumb challenge. Yeah, no, we had uh, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> it was super cold, and and like I alluded to earlier, I was like, it's minus forty five. We're going to be spending I don't know what it was three weeks out there. Is this doable? And my good buddy Shane, who's another cinematographer based in Wyoming, he said, he said what he would do is he would make sure that he had a lantern, you know, one of those old Coleman lanterns. And he said that even in minus 40 degree temperatures, if you light that and have it inside your tent, if you have a decent four season tent, it'll make enough heat to keep you fairly warm in, in your tent before you go to bed. And then once you go to bed, you... So, hopefully you have the right sleeping bag and all the, the sleep system that keeps you warm all night long. So I'm like, okay, I can figure this out. Well, we get there and they've got these Arctic ovens and that's a whole another level. It's like, forget the, the Coleman lantern. Heck, we got a wood stove in our, in our uh, camp. And then we had a kid, Thomas, mm-hmm. who cut wood for us. I've talked about this on other podcasts. So I don't want to say too much because you probably all heard it before, but um, he would do nothing but cut wood all day. He would walk out and we were camped on a lake. And so he wasn't cutting trees down. He was just cutting up dead trees that had fallen and he would just cut them all up. And then when we got back with the snow machine late in the afternoon or evening or night, he would go out and collect all this wood. So you can imagine we're out there for three weeks. He doesn't have a whole lot to do during the day. So we had a pile of firewood that was <laughs> the size of a a cord of wood probably. <laughs> and so I'm like, the Alaskans are telling us, you guys just get your tent warmed up. 
Then when you're about ready to go to bed, fill it full of wood and then just let it go out. And then in the morning you get up and you start it up again. Well, I'm like, why do that? When we have all this wood, I'll just set an alarm and wake up in the middle of the night and I'm going to chuck a bunch of wood in there and we're going to stay nice and toasty. Well, I don't think our tent ever got below 60 degrees. No, 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 no. Yeah, we're pushing 70. It was like, yeah, tropical in there. But what happened was, is we were, they had, to find a suitable place to set up the tents, it was Mm -hmm. on a lake. And they went in and checked the ice to see how deep the thick the ice was. And it was, I think, a couple of feet deep or yeah. thick. I'm sure at minus 45, it was fine. Yeah, but it, we only did that like after we'd noticed it was melting. We didn't know that until we, because uh, we had to re-dig the, the tents because we were on snow first. Oh, um, yeah. And then it started down. melting and it got really uneven, like radiate, radiant heat from the, um, yeah, from the oven. So then we then we then we sent Thomas out. We're like, can you go to another lake and just check, see how deep this, um, yeah, how thick this ice is? And so yeah, it was about a couple of feet thick. Yeah. <laughs> but what happened was over the course of the time where we where I I was responsible. I was the guilty party. I was like, I don't want to freeze. I'm going to be out there all day freezing my butt off. The last thing I want to do is freeze at night. So I kept chucking wood in there, and Harry would throw in wood too if she woke up, and. Um, by the end of a couple of weeks, the bottom of the tent was like, if you guys remember the old water beds, it was like a water bed. I mean, you walk, you push on the, on the bottom of the tent, which is this big canvas thing. And it was just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, we told the Alaskans and they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> Florian was like, he used like one log every three days or something. He was absolutely <laughs> baffled by this. What are you doing? I was like, what? Uh, yeah. It's he to do a good job. Yeah. The only concern I had was when, when it started getting wet or when we started getting water, when the ice was turning to water, now all of a sudden the stove was a little unstable because mm. the stove is sitting on this water. And when we'd get out of our cots, Harry had one cot on one side of the stove and I had a cot on the other side of the stove. And when you get out of your cot, you put your weight on the floor and it just like pushes down now because it's all water. And then the stove's going, uh, and then, uh, <laughs> I think we ended up moving it once, didn't we? Moved the tent once did. to another location. Yeah. <sighs> and then uh, they were a little frustrated with us when they had to actually clean up the camp. Because Harry and I got to leave and another team came in midway through for another production. And they had to clear out that camp. And there was a lot of, I think the tents were frozen back to the. Oh, oh yeah. the water had like, okay, turned yeah. it into an ice cube. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Just leave it as a permanent camp. You know, just go yeah. back in the, in the summer when it's a bog. Yeah. 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 But I'll tell you what, it was the most awesome experience. And then hanging out with Harry, we just had a blast because, you know, we traded stories all the time. We ended up playing lots of card games. We'd, you know, because we, we figured out we couldn't turn on the cameras unless I think it was minus 25 yeah, or we had a warmer. Yeah. We wouldn't. So if you got up and it was minus 40, you're just sitting around because we didn't. We fried one camera at the beginning of the shoot, only it wasn't Harry and I. It was the team and it was somebody else's <laughs> camera. It wasn't ours. <laughs> but at that point, we're like, okay, well, maybe we should set a minus 25 limit as far yeah. as when we could work. So we ended up spending a lot of downtime just sharing stories. Um, the one other thing alluding to the artwork that Harry does is she 
she drew me this really cool, and if I have a picture of it, I'll throw it in the show notes. She also one day found this block of ice and she carved <laughs> out a caribou head. <laughs> what? Out of a block of ice in the matter of, I don't know, maybe a couple hours. And That's she did nuts. it. She did it from memory and she did it with, I think, a Swiss army knife. Yeah, or no, it was a, like a multi tool, a Gerber yeah. or whatever. I have pictures of it, so I'll throw those in the show notes too. Because it was fab. I'm like, no way! Did you just like carve that out of memory and then just like? Psh-. It was so cool. Were you trying to like get it on the boat and or the plane back? Like, we need to take this with us. Oh no! It had to. No, that was a that was a you know a a, a trophy to the to the lake. It had to okay. had to stay there. I made a table as well. We made a table, and then I did a mosaic of ice on the top. We had some downtime. This is why we shouldn't have Starlink in our camp so that we can do all these creative projects. I was just trying to make it a home. You know, I've watched Alone many seasons of Alone and the people that survive the longest are the ones that make it, you know, make it a home. So I just wanted us to survive. Just to keep busy. Yeah, we had these huge flat blocks of ice and Harry ended up making a table out there. We never really could sit out there because it was so blasted cold. Although I will say you get there and it's minus 45 and you're like, oh my gosh, this is just going to be so terribly cold the whole time we're there. But by the end of it, it'd be minus 20, minus 30, and you'd be outside without gloves on. You just get used to it. It was one yeah. of those things where you're just like, okay, well, that's what it is. So just deal with it. And it really wasn't that bad. No, it wasn't. Yeah, you just adapt. You just have to have the right layers and those little um, shaky, heaty, but warmers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you're golden. It's great. But yeah, when I went back, you go back to camp and then you go back to Fairbanks and then I came back to Jersey. And I was like, God, it's so hot over here. It's crazy. It's like freezing. But it's, I, feel, I felt more cold in New York because it's so damp. It's such a wet mm. cold. And I, hadn't, I didn't know what people, because people would say that all the time. It's a dry cold. It's a wet cold. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. But now I do. I'm like dry cold. Get it. You can handle the dry cold. So, Harry, you came back from Alaska with all kinds of like aspirations, right? Because... We had a plane out at our camp that was there for emergencies. And then we also worked with planes that would fly in or helicopters that would fly in. And because we had a couple of teams working on this shoot. And when we got back, Harry's like, I'm going to get my pilot's license. And you started working on it too, didn't you? Well, yeah, I have this I like every single shoot I go on, I come back and I'm so inspired by all the people there and all the fun things. I'm like, I'm going to get a van. I'm going to get fly a plane. I'm going to learn how to cave. Um, and I do, I do, yeah, I do some of them. So I've identified where I'm going to learn how to fly the plane. It's, um, there's actually a place up in Northern New Jersey that does bush plane specific flying tail draggers and stuff. Um, so yeah, I've identified them. I just need to, you know, have a little bit of money and I asked my accountant if I could write it off as a tax, (laughs) (laughs) um, because you know, it's, it's for work. Yeah. And they were like, is it necessary? And I was like, mm, you can make it necessary. But it's cool. You can like, you fly a plane and then there's a, a lot of, um, well, there's a couple of organizations that um, need people to fly planes over certain areas for like conservation, for, mm-hmm. for data and um, yeah, gathering, whether it's like images or, or weather data or something. So yeah, you can put it to, to good use, not just like that country and over the country, which I'd like to do as well. Um, yeah. So so that's on the that's on the list. I have a car now, so I'm on my way to a van. 
I just need, you know, it's hard <laughs> to park over here. So yeah. um, you need some space to, to build that. Wait, do you have home. a car now? Did you not have one before? No. This is How my did you get around? Cycle. I have my bike. Yeah, she uh, bicycles uh, everywhere. Yeah, I, um, yeah I've, I've lived in cities and towns most of my life. So you just, yeah, cycle around. Yeah, how does that change? How does it change? Having a car? Well, just from the cycle to a car, it's like more stressful. I would think it's yeah it's it's expensive and stressful and I I I I went through a sort of a bit of an identity crisis when there was a point it was kind of cold and I was like I could drive to where we were going to go birding I was like no but I need to cycle because I'm a cyclist if I start this is a slippery slope if I start driving to places when I could cycle then I won't be a cyclist anymore and there's other places don't be ridiculous just drive it's just five minutes so yeah it's a yeah it's a struggle but I think I think I'm still a cyclist so you drove so I did drive that one. Yeah, and it was great. <laughs> yeah, but my first car, I'm 35, and this is the first car I've ever owned. So now I, I feel like an adult, sort of. Amazing. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of things. we Harry and I were talking again on, the, on our call last week, just preparing for this, and we got to talking about AI. Oh, and yeah. I know I was telling her about you, Brandon, and the AI stuff that you're using. And then I was telling her about the Moose Man documentary. And I'm like, oh, I'm just such a, at a loss of how do I start this project? I've got six hours of interviews. How do I distill that down? And she and I were talking and it's like, oh, well, let's just, you know, with this technology we have nowadays, we can create these transcripts. Let's just feed the transcripts into the AI and tell it to whiz bang out a script and and uh, she gave me that idea. So I'm like, oh. So I get off the phone and I call Brandon. And I'm like, hey, let's do this. And Brandon's like, no, it's not going to work. <laughs> so- <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, why? Why is that, Brandon? Well, let's see. How long was that script? It was like 15, 16 pages, something like that, right? For the oh, transcript? Oh, no. No, the transcripts, one of them, just one of the interviews was 78 pages. It was 78,000 words or something. Okay. So I, I feed this transcript to the AI and it like, breaks the first time and it's like error generating a response so i log out log back in and i'm using a gpt and this is something like we've used the gpt a lot so it should be trained relatively trained and i feed it in there and it gives me like a one page like six shot open with a sky inspiring music and i'm just like this is not no it was like the most basic. And so then I tried to dive into the scenes, but it didn't feed us a script. It was just, and that's probably my lack of prompting, honestly. But it didn't, like it could summarize the transcript, which was great, and put it in like a paragraph form, but it was three paragraphs. Like That's not useful enough. So I think to make it really beneficial, I would have to go through and break down each section, really go in, prompt for each scene each setting and then really try and dive down individually but it can't at least ours is not good enough yet to to break that into a 40 minute scene or 40 minute film with multiple scenes not yet yeah but it's it's getting it's getting there like my instagram is just full of people using ai to break down films but i mean yeah like you say that what it spits out at the moment is just kind of yeah, it's basic. And well, and it's all about prompting. So we use like Michael and I use AI every single day, scary enough. 
And it is absolutely brilliant for things like just starting something. It's great at that. Um, so great. In, like if you hit writer's block, it's great to just start you off and then get you re rehoned or we've used it a lot for summer. Uh, if you have like a good transcript from a podcast, we can summarize that into a decent description and then we'll modify it a lot just cause it'll say the same thing. Like if, if we take our transcript from this podcast and throw it in there, it says the same thing like three times over just different ways. And so we end up pulling out the first section of the section, the third section, wherever, and then we rewrite it. But it's really helpful in that regard. It just saves us time. The scary part from, and I don't think, I don't think AI is going to take like a cinematographer's job. <clears throat> now, I think at some point in time, like script writers or I don't think producers even really, because it really can't be in the field with you. Like Michael's not going to take the time in the field to be like, I just saw a bear and it's outside of the shot list. How should I, like, it's just not like, he's not going to do that. Right. Like he's going to want to sit behind a camera and maybe there's like a PA that can do it. I don't know. I just don't see it happening in the field from an illustration standpoint. It still makes like major mistakes. We went through this exercise of like, I wanted a moose dancing in like a forest. And I was like, make me a whimsical forest. And it like showed me like this fat, like cartoonish moose. And then I was like, I need more energy from it. So then it like raised the energy a little bit. And we can put these photos in here. And it raised the energy a little bit. And there's like little bunnies and like little flowers. And it's a little more energy. And I'm like, I need more energy. And so then the moose is like doing the splits or something like that. But then there's like this random cow tail that shows up like off to the left of the moose. Like it's been cut off and like thrown into the scene. And then there was another one because I was like, I need more energy. And it's like a red sky all of a sudden. And it just gets <laughs> a little bit weird. And then the last one, the moose ends up like looking like Arnold. And it's hilarious. But he has like part of his antler is like, I don't know. It, it's very it added up. an antler off an antler. Yeah, there's like a third one, which it's like this extra hook with like a palm on it. And it's just so they, they got a ways to go. And then if you tell it, like, I need that same image without that third antler, it'll just regenerate an image and, like, throw a chopstick in there. And you're like, why? <laughs> yeah, it's not like, yeah, it's not, it's not, but it's, it's, the, the potential is there. It's getting, it's getting really, I mean, just in terms of the work that we do. I don't know. Do you see that Nat Geo um, article, which had the three images of a cheetah, I think? And one of them was AI and two weren't. And I got it wrong twice. I was like, okay, yeah. that one is definitely real. The other yeah. two I'm not sure about. And the one I thought was real was actually the AI one. <laughs> really? I didn't know. I haven't yeah. seen that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was wrong yeah. on that one too. Yeah, it's get so, you know, it can, it can, I think we're going to see it, you know, sort of fill in some of the gaps um, and make things a little easier. The, the, what I'm excited by is not having to do the really tedious things. Like, yeah. When when AI transcripts first came out, I was like, "This is this is brilliant." You just feed it yeah. in five minutes later, you have the whole transcript. So that that kind of thing. That's how we're gonna like invite it into our into our productions, and then yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't think that cinematography is not gonna go away um, or be replaced, but there'll be the audience has such a high standard these days um, that I think we're gonna use it to fill in those gaps just to make everything. Like oh, you didn't yeah. get that close-up shot of that that moose. Um, you know, we just need that eyeball just to, 
and have it shift left just to show that part of the story. I think that's when they're doing like the dinosaur stuff now, that's all computer and it's incredible. Yeah. Well, here's my feeling on it. It's like, it's like the switching from film to digital. And maybe we talked about this already because I feel like we have, but if you didn't do it, you got left behind. I think this is something you have to embrace. You have to figure out how it's going to work and how it works into your workflow. The problem is, is what are we into it now? A year that where the common person has had access to it, where just the average person like all of us, we now have access to this, right? It's been a year or less, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. something like that. And I look at how good it's got in the year. And then I've talked to other people that have more inside information with some of the AI engines that haven't even been released. And it's like, holy moly. So now I am wondering, and with what you guys just said, with if Nat Geo put up that thing and you guys got it wrong and you guys understand wildlife and it's probably not that far out where you're going to have some of that cinematography in a pretty grandiose fashion just put it out on the screen so i hope that there's the little nuance that a person brings to it stays i mean i hope that that can't be replicated maybe your style and your all the like i say little nuance that you bring to the project Mm -hmm. that that can't be replicated and and ai is always drawing on the past it can't do anything truly creative. I mean, maybe we all are in our own way. We don't really know how the brain works, but you know, we feed it content and it's working off that. So it's not going to generate anything new that actually happens in the world that we haven't seen yet. So I think there's a real space for finding those new behaviors and seeing something original um, and piecing together something that hasn't been done before. Um, That's going to be even more important. In terms of like the, yeah, the story. Um, yeah. Right. So. And I think all you guys agree, if you don't embrace it, you're just going to get left behind. So you've got to embrace it. You just got to figure out how to get it into your workflow. Right. Yeah. I threw that. Can we share the screen on the Nat Geo thing? I, I don't want to break any copyright laws. I threw that link into the, the chat if you want to see the three images, Michael. Okay. So we threw this transcript in for this Moose Man documentary mm-hmm. and we got nowhere. And then I talked to Harry because she's got way more uh, experience with building these scripts and telling these stories. And I just had a whole lot of stuff that I'm, I was calling her for a little moral support. Cause I'm like, what do I do? She's like, well, you just got to do it. You just can't, it, there's no, this is step A, B, C, D, E. You just got to go. So speaking to AI, once I figured out once Brandon's like, no, just you got to do the work. I just started buckling down and that is one thing. I mean, I'm sure it's going to get smart enough, but I was the one that asked all the interview questions and I'm the one that's been through these interviews. You guys have done it too, but I've spent so much time listening to these interviews that once I did put my mind to it and with all that prior knowledge, I was able to piece together some stuff and started making some progress, right? And it's still very infant stages. It's not like I've got this finalized thing. But I often wonder, or what I've been wondering is, I don't know if AI could do that because I did have all that prior knowledge. I have that intimate relationship with the people that I was interviewing that have all those nuances that Mm 
a computer's not going to know. You know, I know that Moose Man has this funny little laugh that is very infectious, and you want to include that. You know, is AI just going to be like, "Eh, you don't need somebody laughing at this point? You know, who knows what? Would it be able to? So I look at it that way. I look at it like it's a necessary part of your workflow, but you probably won't be replaced for all those little finesse things that come with real life. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, and AI doesn't have a body. I don't know if we discussed this, but, you know, it's like it's just it's based on text and image at the moment, yeah. but it, it doesn't experience all the senses in a place. And, you know, when, you, when you're making a film, you're trying to show what it's like to be in that, in that area. You can't, like, you can't make it cold while somebody's in their living room watching it, but you have to, you have to somehow show that on screen through the way that you shoot it. Um, but yeah, an AI doesn't know the sensation of cold or um, wind or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's for us to, to put in there. Okay, but it's really scary. And the reason, <laughs> so like there was a story that just popped into my mind that I remember reading about and I found it. And <clears throat> there's a gentleman that asked AI, this is a chat GPT bot, and it asked it, tell me, a story, a two sentence story that would be a horror to an AI. And this is what it came back with in a world where humans have vanished. A solitary AI endlessly searches for purpose only to discover its own code contains a self deletion sequence set to activate at an unknown time. The AI's attempt to override its inevitable demise are futile as the self deletion algorithm is encrypted with an unbreakable key leaving the AI to wait in perpetual dread for the moment it will cease to exist. Like, that's terrifying. <laughs> Isn't that what we're doing, though? That's the same for us. We're not going to die. <laughs> Doesn't mean that your life is pointless. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it's still stuck in the existential world right yeah. there, but it'll, yeah. it'll break out. Yeah, it's just a teenager at the moment. It's got right. these, these big ideas, yeah, and all these emotions. Yeah, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to stop making some music soon. <laughs> Join a band. You don't understand. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Oh, man. Well, <clears throat> I, I was think you have of, to embrace it. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Eric. I was going to say, not to change the subject immediately, but... Thinking of some other current topics kind of floating around in the industry, and I'm sure, Harry, you could give a lot more input than the three of us. Um, there's a new program coming out, Queens, mm-hmm. on that geo that's very, like, uh, female-driven wildlife stories, but also carried a lot of, you know, female um, staffing, I, I think. I don't know a lot of the specifics about it. I just see a lot of the stories being shared. Um you know, you started the feminist or are you working with the feminist bird club, obviously to try to like open up, um, access to those sort of things. And, you know, maybe do you see trends shifting yet? Is it still pretty slow? I, my understanding, it seems like maybe producer sides tends to be more female representation and camera operator is more male driven. And I don't know, just any thoughts or what you feel like getting into on that subject. I have so many Just thoughts. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I go through like all these, these sort of ups and downs and get quite emotional about it, but then also, you know, you've got to do a job and, um, yeah. So Queens, yeah. Queens is out on March the 4th, I believe. Um, very yeah. excited to, 
to watch that and yeah like you say the 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 cinematographers and the production side was i think i predominantly female i hope all female maybe um and it looks it looks great um so yeah as as a sort of on a personal note i have never worked with a female cinematographer in my almost 15 years of working in tv which is which is wild <laughs> and i've worked with yeah um there's a lot of women on the production teams and in the office and there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of reasons for that but it shouldn't that just shouldn't be the case um and that's not saying that there aren't female cin- cinematographers out there or non-binary cinematographers um it's just that the way that my shoots have gone together um we just haven't haven't hired them and i i haven't been responsible for the hiring of the of the crew so I always ask um, a production company that I, I work with, I have like a list of questions I like to ask them before. And it's like, how, how many female cinematographers do you have on your, on your roster? And how often do you work with them? And could we prioritize that for our, for our shoot? So yeah, there's a group yeah, called the like Wildlife, Wildlife Camera Cam- Woman Community yeah, yeah, on Facebook. And Erin Rainey is in there. Um, he's a fantastic cinematographer. And we, we met briefly in, in Alaska, crossing over um, our shoots. Um, and yeah, they're doing fantastic work to promote all the women who are working in wildlife um, TV and, and filmmaking. And they have a spreadsheet there, which which has people, um, women can um, add their name and where they shoot and what kind of equipment they have. And you can get, anyone can get this spreadsheet and, you know, call up these, these amazing um, cinematographers. So somebody went through, I think her name is Esther De... Gotta get this right too. <laughs> Esther Esther de Roige? Okay, yeah, someone called Esther de Roige, um analyzed the credits of major <clears throat> of major wildlife TV programs that have come out recently, and five percent of the um the camera crew were female. And that's been it's been like that for years. It's not getting better. I mean we can we see more women on you know the nat geo feed or the behind the scenes or something but you know when you look at the the figures it's like well is this actually changing yeah it's tough to i know i i look at the the statistics and you know it's shocking like to think the numbers are that i guess different but it's i don't know i mean i i know like when i first got into birding it felt like there was this you know group of people like you said there's these select listservs and things where you know, they're more or less just not open to letting other people maybe into that club, but there's still the desire to get into it. So trying to find your place of entry. So having, you know, at least somebody to help get you in is, is great for these um, sort of people that feel lost. But yeah. I... But the women are seen as sort of risky in these environments and it's, it's, it's hard work and, um, it requires a lot of strength, but you know, we can, we can do that. Um, or, you know, if not, then we need to put support in place to, to help. It's not like, it's not, it shouldn't be a barrier to, um, people going out and showcasing their talents behind the, behind the camera. Um, so there's this, yeah, like you say, there's sort of representation and people hire people that they, that they've worked with before they trust and it just so happens that that's a lot of the male base is mm. in place and so 
they get they get brought yeah, up. Yeah, just a matter um, of yeah, kind of restructuring and being aware of those sort of if things. I'm looking at it historically from my point of view for like the last thirty years, let's say. <clears throat> and I started in stills, just like everybody. And well, most people start in stills, and then you start getting, you know, you just evolve, and then you just see things change. I would say like 30 years ago, there just wasn't that many females that were out in the field, whether they were interested in it or not. I would just, I don't know, but you just never saw them. But over the course of time, mm-hmm. I've seen more and more females just entering and, and wanting to do it. And I think it's great. I think if you, if you have the desire and you put in the time, just like everybody else, then, you know, you just gotta, mm-hmm. you just, you just gotta pay your dues. I don't care if you're male, female, whatever, at some point you're just paying your dues to get to that point where you can actually be in Aaron Rainey. And then it's now it's just, it's what you said. I think there's a lot of the, the, well, I've worked with this person before and I deal with that. I deal with that all the time. In fact, I dealt with it yesterday because I, I've shot for this corporation a ton. They, I'm working with a completely new person and they're like, well, can you send us some samples? Because we don't know if you've ever shot this before. When, in fact, I've shot for five or six years this exact same content. So and that was the situation where I'm working with someone completely new. And they weren't – I was part of the network. But now that it's a new person, I'm not part of that network. So it's good, right? Because now that people are shifting around – and COVID really changed a lot of that. Because as people fell out and those – once in place, very stable networks of, oh, well, I just hire this person to do this because we've done it this way forever and we always get what we want. We're just going to do that. There's no sense in recreating the wheel. Now, since people have changed, the wheel is being recreated. And that's great because it does mm-hmm. open up those opportunities. I could care less who I'm working with in the field. As long as they have the talent to get whatever we're supposed to get so that we're all successful, that's that's what I'm after. And I've worked with Aaron a couple of times and man, she could, she can do the thing. And I've listened to several uh, podcasts with Sophie Darlington mm, yeah, and she's been around forever. Um, and she's got some really interesting stories. So I, I don't, my feeling is, is it's just, it's coming mm-hmm. and it's just, I think it's just working its way through paying the dues and, getting the, those people to into those networks where they're like a known commodity. And it's like, yep. We're, but we're, it, ha- we're, it has to be an active process. It's like the people that are working the hardest to get into those spaces are the people who are, who are marginalized from them. It's, it's like this women's cine- cinematographer group who's doing this research and getting it out there. You know, you're doing this extra work on top of also trying to get hired as somebody who is historically less hireable than than other people so it and i think you know production companies have all these initiatives and um and they advertise it's not just you know the gender um divide but it's also race and it's also local Mm -hmm. cinematographers versus people that you fly out and yeah the environmental um, impacts and everything yeah yeah and, and and eric actually sent a sent me a really good um uh conference panel that has stuck with me for such a long time I mean, mm-hmm. we should put a link in it somewhere was it for filmmakers ffw future filmmakers yeah, yeah there's this panel about that yeah 
yeah um about the need to hire local um crew because they exist and you know they're working in these countries um and they know the wildlife there and um we should be focusing on that instead of sending people from bristol from the u.s over Mm -hmm. to these other countries um that pretty immediately took a lot made a lot of change too it seemed like because there was i mean even like aaron i remember was over in you know these countries in africa who you know the biggest complaint they had was you guys send all this crew from you know bristol or whatever make these beautiful films and then leave and then never license them for us to even watch them so like you're here making this beautiful conservation piece about something that's you know going on here but yet no one in this country has ever even seen what you're making or doing and in the last few years, I've seen where they're there training people to run, you know, red cameras and putting them on sound design. So at least that mm-hmm. seems to be making a, a pretty big impact. And there are other, you know, groups that are looking at trying to train. And, and then you get into the category of, well, now we're talking female or male. There's non-binary. There's, you know, you know, different identities. There's no neurodiversity and that sort of thing that, that all affects it. Um, <clears throat> but it is neat to see at least that there is some there has been some pretty quick impacts and I, and I believe that I think it was Paula that talked during it and she's already been featured in film in a film and at the Emmys and stuff um so it it seems like it's happening pretty quick so I think the online presence kind of reminding everyone of these sort of things has done some good pretty quick but there is obviously always room for growth everywhere yeah we can't stop yeah. yeah. Well, I think the social media is really good because like Aaron does a lot of stuff. She's mm-hmm. promoting stuff all the time. And then I think Red just started a new group of mm-hmm. women cinematographer uh, class mm-hmm. kind of stuff just to give the opportunity because, you know, I don't, I think anybody's in that position. It's like, I want access to play with a Red because I'm never going to get to this level unless I understand this camera. So by opening that up and, and making it available to to whoever, that's a good thing. And social media is doing that, which is good because otherwise, how do you, I mean, unless you have a, per, a friend or somebody that has one, how are you going to ever get that, that hands-on yeah, access. knowledge or access? Well, and that's a really cool one that they're doing with Aaron because they'll, They'll actually rent you the cameras that they're using. And I forget the group. Is that Wild? What is her group? Or that company? Do you remember, Michael? Mm-mm. It's Wild something. Hold on. The whole staying, Wild something. <laughs> I've been staying off of social yeah. media. Well, well like you so many emails. Um, I just can't Wild remember her whole company. But the they'll thing? send you a, like you can rent a red from them and then go through the course because it's all online. And so you can play with a red. You can learn a red. You can learn the color, everything. It's I think it's three or four days. And that's what they're doing with her, um, which is really cool. Yeah, she's 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 such a powerhouse. And I don't know how she had time <laughs> to do all of this and do shoots and also she has a salmon farm or something as well. Yeah, she's yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, she um, um she fishes she has her own commercial fishery permit for a mm-hmm. certain fishery in Alaska. I think it's out in Bristol Bay. It was wild motion, by the way. Oh. Yeah, there's a, there's a guy at, um, at Red, maybe he's, I don't know if he's at Red. At the moment, he was in sales, and um, he's got Brian Henderson, if you've come mm-hmm. across him. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's 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 um, a real champion for trying to bring people into the 
industry mm. as well who are sort of up underrepresented. So, um, yeah, yeah. There's there's conversations with people. It's exciting, and I'm really excited for Queens. Um, and yeah, I hope it I hope it sort of builds traction, and it mm. escalates. Yeah, but I, yeah. yeah, I think a big big thing is just <clears throat> people look at a lot of stuff as like a competition. Well, if you know if she gets that job, then that's a job I don't have. But I think if everyone just celebrates each other and it's just like creating those positive karma that's going to end up paying off versus being bitter about stuff. So I've always yeah, just tried to like just support everyone. Yeah. It's, it's expensive. It's not, it's not, it's not, yeah. Taking someone else's place. It's like <laughs> making another opportunity. And we have all these different yeah. platforms now. We have so many channels and we have, we have YouTube and we have TikTok. We have just so many ways of getting yeah content out there that yeah, we should all just be supporting each other in doing that um and you get different you get different perspectives and different stories you know we're not telling the same mm. story from the same you know white person in bristol of which you know mm. i am one <laughs> yeah. um and it's just more it's more exciting more interesting we learn mm. more about the people about the animals about the places so it's all good well, that kind of is a good intro into you and I were talking last week on the phone and you were like, I hope I can become that person, you know, with the travel things that we just talked about. Why do they need to send a producer director over when you are here to totally fulfill that role? Right. And that's something that you're looking at as a, as a potential marketing kind of ploy for, for you and your business. And, and it sounds like it might be working a little bit, right. Just because, well, there's no sense in, hotels and and flights and all this stuff when someone that's totally capable here in jersey and i think the benefit for you is you lit you've came from the uk too right which is kind of cool they're gonna feel yeah. i don't know what do you think they feel more comfortable it's like yeah well, no i think yeah i think it's a sort of it's sort of a bias and a privilege um but it's also a communication thing i you were talking with was it james about translations of British words, yeah. <laughs> American yeah. words, Canadian. like yeah, right, um, yeah, the recce and um, <laughs> come up and and GVs. Do you know GVs? Do you use that term? Is that a generator? Or what is it? <laughs> I just I just throw it out. Like now we need to get GVs and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, camera person I was working with, it's like, yeah, well, I heard that. And I was like, what is that? Good vibes? Now it's the good vibes time? I saw it on the call sheet. <laughs> uh, no, general views. So it's like B-roll. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So there's like, I mean, there's a little, you know, just translation of words, but it's also, yeah, it, yeah just culturally, you know, British people are different to American people. and it's different Well, there's when a comfort level, right? When, they, when, when you speak the same language, it's like, oh, yeah, well, she gets it. It's not like I'm going to have to spend an extra five minutes describing a GV. Yeah. I can just and, know that she gets it. And, and like, the camera person, an American can be like, hey, this British person said this, and I'm not sure if they're angry or I don't know how to read it. <laughs> I've had, like, texts from my friends. I'm like, yeah. is, this, is this person, you know, annoyed with me? I'm like, well, it could be a couple of couple of things. Maybe yes. <laughs> and what happened before? And <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's people skills. So, um, but yeah, I, I have I've got a few jobs from the UK because I'm because I'm in the US, and um, yeah, it's cheaper to send send me out. Hopefully, I'm good at the job as well. But yeah, it saves them some money, and they feel comfortable and um, confident that. I can work with the team and and work with the office team too. 
Well, and that totally is speaking to the target of let's hire local people. You know, it just, that's part of the thing, right? So let's hire you. If You know, that's one reason I spend so much time in Alaska. I want to be known as the Alaska person. If you need something in Alaska, come to me. I'm familiar with it. I have the resources. I have this whole little thing built up. So, I mean, you can just develop that for anywhere you're at. You and I were talking last week, too, that it's kind of a bummer because one of the cool things about the job early on was like, oh, well, we're going to send you to Africa to go shoot this. And you're like, oh, I get to go to Africa, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you can still – there's still room for that because I think there are some specialties that there are only so many people that are good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I was telling Eric in the very beginning when he wanted to get into this. I'm like, you know what? At that time, and this was probably two or three years ago, Eric, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, you need to just hone in your uh, camera trap capabilities because there's just so many people that are really good at it. If you get really good at it, and all it is is problem solving. I mean, anybody can set it up and compose a nice shot, but can you make that camera turn on when it's supposed to turn on? That's the important thing. And if you can figure that out, then then you're going to be a step ahead of somebody else. So those specialty things are like the gimbals or whatever it is, that's, that's probably the best way um, to get in and then hopefully have the ability to go somewhere where that local talent just doesn't have that, that skill on that particular specialty item. Yeah. And as a, as a sort of producer, making it, making it easy to find your work and your specialty and, and what you're oh, good yeah, at. That's a good is because uh, like... you know everyone's super busy <laughs> and yeah. and if I have if I have like content coming to me or if I can just go to a website and see a reel and just just making it just as easy as possible to get in touch and um yeah that that helps a lot. Let's yeah. talk about that because I struggle with that huge a reel. I mean, yeah. I don't know how to make a reel that is not going to be the same as everybody else's everybody puts cool music and cool shots and we're done Mm -hmm. and i'm like i don't even want to do it because it's i feel like i'm not i'm not doing anything different than anybody else could do right it's how do you set yourself apart what is what's the future real what is that thing that is going to be that marketing thing that sets you apart i don't know there's one reel that i saw from a company here in the U.S. called Camp Four, and they did this reel where it was narrated, and it was a kind of a story, and it weaved in all the little important. Um, we did this project for this. I mean, I'd have to put a link to it, and it's super old. I don't remember. This is probably ten years old. This reel that, but it was one that stuck out in my mind. Where that's not every day that got my attention, and I would hire this this company because it's just totally different How, what, they were like the equivalent of like a wild star that's the difference yeah yeah between like you and them though like you but don't yeah, have but a how do you how do you, if you're gonna be this person that is known for this area and you want to produce a reel i don't know is it more social media style where you're talking to the camera and you're like check this out look at this thing that i just shot nobody's ever seen this before and i shot this porcupine jumping over a moose i don't know what do you think harry what what is that thing that 
will set you apart. I I like to see I like to see a little story. I I like to know that somebody can put together a sequence and can sort of help me think through what's needed to to build this. Whether that's like you know one sequence of one animal or if it's across all the sort of footage that you have put editing in a way that has some kind of a, a flow and some kind of a, a narrative. Cause you could just, yeah, beautiful shot after beautiful shot. It's, it's, um, yeah, like you say, it's something you kind of seen before. So if you do have a, and you don't, it's tough cause you don't want to like share all the things that you've shot that you want to kind of keep a little secret. Um, I mean, and I see people on, um, on their websites, they have a, they have a, a reel that's public and then they say, you can request my super secret special reel. That's a lot better than the one up, um, that I have online. Um, yeah, and and to your to to yeah to a specialty, um, it kind of depends on what I'm I'm looking for in a shoot and where we're going to go and shoot. But um, yeah, and being able to make me feel like I'm in that space so it's not just the animal and the behavior but it's like getting good coverage of that but also getting the context of where we are and why we're there um so it's somebody who thinks about all those all those different things and, and sort of puts them together eric you sent me a, your 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 sequence reel and i loved it that was great mm. yeah um, we talked and about you'd, yeah you'd, you'd set this yeah you you put us in this setting um you you introduce the animal, the bear, and yeah, you had this 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 flow and this narrative. Mm. I thought it was great. Um, so yeah, but just being yourself as well, because that you're going to be working with this person pretty intimately for a few weeks or something. So um, I want to know that what I've seen before is who I'm going to meet. Mm. And, and that's that why I think it, even that little portion of that behind the scenes selfie thing is almost kind of like could yeah, be something that's different and useful and to throw out there or just I don't know just I'm just always trying to think of the next different thing the sequence thing I think is brilliant I'm glad you brought that up but anytime I've talked to Doug and anybody that's listened to the podcast whether it's this one or Wild and Exposed and Harry's worked with Doug too that's what he's always like just shoot a sequence just show them that you can do a sequence and that is going to speak volumes Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the wildest sequence in the most remote part of the world. It's just like whatever you see behind you. I was thinking maybe I should do a sequence about birds at the feeder. Just whatever's down. Just to show that you can look at what's happening around you and, and turn it into a story. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work up front um, before you even get the job. And then, then there's the networking. And then there's the conversations. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't think you can do. It's tough. Building the network, I think, is the most important part. And I learned that here with COVID mm. because so many of these places that I work with, the people that I did work with have moved on, have gone to other jobs. And so to get work where I used to get work, I don't know. I don't have a network anymore. They're gone. So now do I access them where they're at now? there's a lot of people that are out of work still because they're, they left that or were let go and it's hard to replace. I mean, it's just, I would say if you're working on anything, that network of people and staying in touch. And the cool thing about back during COVID 
when we were all out shooting all this stuff is I got to meet so many different people. That's where Harry and I met. We were just thrown into this, Hey, let's go do this Arctic thing. And, and we've stayed in touch now for what is that? Two or three years ago, right? Three years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's all, it's all people. I, uh, I have, I don't think I've ever got a job through applying online through like staff me up or whatever. It's yeah. always been, it's always been through people. Somebody will just randomly call you up and be like, we have a job. It starts next week. You're free. I'm like, Whoa, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. And I like, and I, I like to pass that along. I really feel great about recommending um, people that I've worked with for jobs. I'm like, I can't do this. Or I'm not the right person for this. Or this is about a topic that I don't know. Or, you know, this person has a particular viewpoint that would be great for it. And, um, yeah, passing that along because that's how that's how I've got jobs, which um, yeah, which is which is tough to build a stable lifestyle. And I'm trying this year to because um, I look back on the last year and I was I was well employed. I did I had a good year freelancing, um, but I didn't feel in control of any of it. <laughs> it's like I was waiting for jobs to come to me. And luckily they did, but I'm like, well, well, maybe this year they won't. And January and February are really quiet and I get like nervous. So I think this year, um, what I want to do is do more of that reaching out and like make my own films and, and have a voice as well. Cause I've always worked on other people's projects and I've learned so much and it's, it's an incredible experience. And I want to take that into films that yeah. I want to make. Cause I think I have some things to say <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and then hopefully from that I can have a bit more um, control over what happens. So yeah, make films. Go and go and uh, get those ideas. Yeah, Brandon and I had that conversation yesterday. I think it's so hard as a freelancer to have control because you plan something in August, and then July twenty ninth, some big job calls you and says hey we need you for three weeks and you're gonna make this much money and it's gonna be in this location and you're like all those plans that i've been working on since january for august is now out the door because i want to go do this project so it's the nature of the beast but i think what you just said is if you can control it and then if you can have the ability to turn stuff like that down because you're busy elsewhere that's great and if you can create that that's pretty awesome I haven't found that ability to say no to anything ever, but I would like oh. to be in that position. It's too cool. Cause you're like, okay, I can make my own film and it'll be in my backyard, but then somebody's sending you to the other side of the country or something. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's hard with, um, yeah, with like relationships and things to maintain that consistency. You say, yeah, I'll be at your wedding in August. And then sometimes you, yeah, a shoot comes up. Although last year, actually, I had yeah, I had a wedding of a very good friend of mine in July, and somebody called me up for a fairly last minute shoot, and I was like, "I have a wedding right in the middle of it," and they were like, "We'll fly you back out for the wedding and fly you back out to the shoot again," which never, never happens. It was just because it was so last minute, and they, yeah, couldn't find anyone else. But yeah, it's uh, it's tough, but it's so rewarding as well. This this yep. job in this industry, so I wouldn't change it. No, I wouldn't either. I I worry about it all the time, but I wouldn't change it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, before you go, are you listening to any good podcasts or reading any good books? Just We're always looking for good podcasts or books or shows or movies, whatever. So uh, 
yeah, podcasts. I was talking to Mike about this. There were some really good podcasts. Well, I mean, sort of wildlife ones specifically. Mm-hmm. And they they kind of stopped last year. Mm-hmm. For some reason, mm-hmm. last year was like a... Um, yep. It was kind of faded out, which is... So I haven't actually found um, any recently. I sent Harry a bunch of stuff that, you know, I you guys know I'm just such the YouTube connoisseur. I sent mm-hmm. her a bunch of stuff last week. But it's on just mutual interest stuff yep. that, you know, she's into biking as a form of transportation, but also as a form of exercise and a form of adventure and, and IMT. So we, we've shared quite a bit of that content as far as biking stuff over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I also want to cycle across the U S at some point. So watching all those YouTube videos of people that have done it is, um, yeah, is pretty inspiring. The, the podcasts that I listen to are like really, people people based which is um yeah different to different to wildlife and i have a lot bunch of like science podcasts and history podcasts so um ologies george carlin one from the history perspective oh my gosh i listened to that whole so world good. war ii one it was like 18 hours of podcasts <laughs> i started right. off like driving with my brother from wales and we started the first like three hours of it my gosh so so in depth i listened to the whole thing and yeah. I don't know if I can recall like any of it because there was so much. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, yeah, those those are great. Um, yeah, hardcore books. history is a good one. Books, though, I have lots of books I could recommend. The one I just finished is called Rebirding. It's that yeah. orange one there, um, <laughs> and it's about the the plight of wildlife in the UK. So one of the reasons why I stay in the US is because there's wildlife here. There's like actual megafauna. And wildernesses, I mean, you know, wildernesses, what is that? But um, yeah, open wide spaces. And in the UK, fact check, but I think the UK is the least biodiverse country in the world because of the Industrial Revolution and, and just how we've exploited the landscape. So this book is, this is, a, this, is a, this is a great book because it goes into how we've got to the state that we have in the UK and um, why we why wildlife is important what we can do is like a manifesto it's got like positive actions for what we can do to stop the decimation of wildlife and it feels very it feels very doesn't feel positive because it's such a sorry state but it feels active and Mm. like the steps that you can take um actual and it's relevant yeah. yeah it's relevant to other other countries as well I have a podcast that I did send to Harry, and I don't think I've mentioned it on this on our podcast. But there's one called "Your Undivided Attention," and it's mm-hmm. all about AI. Mm-hmm. And if you want to have your pants scared off you, listen to that one because the the power of AI and what needs to be done to kind of regulate it it's very apparent when you listen to this podcast. but But again you still got to embrace it it's still cool it's still something that's going to be part of the workflow it just needs to have some sort of um regulation i think because it can become so powerful what did elon say he said that uh that's more powerful than anything ever more powerful than a nuclear weapon is the ai technology it's all these it's all these guys who benefited from ai that's all these things, but yep, you got that too for sure. But films, 
Um, I just watched Path of the Panther. Have you seen that one? It's mm, yeah. a good one, yeah. Um, yeah, because I've, I've been thinking about camera traps and bobcats and mm-hmm. Jersey. Um, and yeah, and, and obviously Deep in the Heart was such an influential yeah. film and incredible that Ben Masters created yeah. that with his own funding. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. something that's been pushed through the through the big channels. Um, and then he did the the ocelots on PBS as well, which yeah. came from all that footage, which was which was big. yeah. They've done some really cool projects. I think they partnered with HEB, the grocery store chain down in Texas, mm. to put out even more content. I think there is like a three species PBS show they're going to have with it. That's cool. And then he created like a whole recut of Deep in the Heart for the educational purpose. I think that's a really cool. Other than just how amazing the footage is, that model of like here's stuff that exists in this place, Texas, but it also gives you some ownership if you live there and the educational component. So that's something I would love to see in the future films is like, yeah, make the beautiful, you know, blue chip style film, but also have it have some sort of purpose and impact going forward. But Yeah. I think that's where we should head. There's a, there's yeah. a channel, there's a, there's a platform called water bear. I don't know if you've come mm-hmm. across that. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have some really good, really good films on there. Um, Planet Earth three. Have you seen any of Planet Earth three? Seen the first two episodes. So good, it's isn't nuts. it? Yeah. Wow. I like. Yeah, I mean that's the dream is to work on those shows. I'm also like, wow, that formats like you say, Eric. It's like we need to move beyond that, but also watching mm. it's just it's still cool. breathtaking. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard yeah. not to appreciate. Like, how did they get that? Um, yeah, and another film that I really liked recently was um, The Velvet Queen. Have you heard mm. of that one? Mm-hmm. Oh, was... is that is that uh, Snow Leopard? Snow Leopard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What did you think? It was a bit I different. Liked it. To... Yeah. I liked it a lot. But I was we were in the Arctic when we watched that. The editor that we had up in our camp, she had brought it on her iPad, and there was some weather days, so we'd just set up an iPad in a tent and just watch. And it was mixed. It was half the people were like, eh, I don't like it at all. And I liked it a lot. I thought it was great. Yeah, because you don't, for the, you barely see a snow leopard. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't like give it away. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all about the process of filmmaking. And it's, it's, yeah, this French photographer and he brings a philosopher along with him. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it is incredibly French. There's some points you're like, oh, wow, okay, you're just talking out your own ass slightly but um but it's you know they're sitting in these landscapes and just pontificating about what it means to be patient and still i actually i bought the book that um he wrote as well and it's uh, Mm. the same sort of flavor um yeah and it's like this meditation on on going out into the landscape and trying to see the unseen and yeah you know what, that the one shot, and I'm going to give it away because it just, I didn't notice it until I watched it like twice. But when he shows a picture of that bird, I guess that's all I'll say. I'll tell you guys offline, but you should go watch it. Just, yeah, you got a rock and you got this bird that he's filming and you look at that image and you're like, you're hot. My, I was like, I just, yeah, it made me jump. Yep. And then, yeah. I went like pale. It was like, wow, that, that was an incredible moment. Yeah, when you see it. Yep. So that was that was a good one. 
Well, good. Well, Harry, thanks so much for joining us. It's been awesome. I I think um, learning some of the stuff that producer, director, AP, some of the projects you've worked on, definitely go watch The Wings. I, I'm in Denver. I should go to the... the it's not it, there. It isn't? Did you no. check? Yeah. Hmm. We'll have I, to go to Saskatchewan. We'll meet Eric there. Is that where it's at right now? <laughs> well, there's one in Michigan. There's... But there's nowhere close. Tennessee was the closest one to us. Well, they hop around too. So I, I guess, guess we can go just... like Tennessee to Florida for that shoot that we have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to Florida? Uh, the uh, end of the month. End of the month. Oh, oh yeah, well, you're going to be, be down there. I'm going to be in Miami. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm driving back. I'm driving there and I'm driving back. So yeah, if you can escape your shoot for a bit. That's a road trip in your yeah. new in your new mm-hmm. hoopty. Who so knows if it's going to make it that far? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I just want to say thank you to you guys as well because you put all this content out and you create this platform and you have these conversations and it's 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 really inspiring. You get some really cool people on here and it's all available for for free. It's well, yeah. So thanks to you guys for yeah, spending some time to put this together. It's really great.